So I'd like to speak about one of the paramis tonight. The first parami is generosity. And generosity is one of the three foundations for establishing your life in the Dharma. So the Buddha gave generosity a pretty high, pretty prominent role in his teachings. And with sila and development of the mind, generosity are the three legs, the three pillars that support the Dharma. Two legs, a two-legged stool is unsteady, a three-legged stool is steady. So when we develop all three of these trainings, then our mind and heart is stable. Generosity supports understanding. Sila, being living harmoniously, supports understanding, supports generosity. Practicing and developing the mind will encourage you to practice generosity and sila. So they have this, you know, uh, reciprocal relationship among all three of them. So generosity. It's said that the Buddha spoke about generosity first whenever invited to share his teachings. Because generosity is not particularly Buddhist. It is something that everyone recognizes as a wholesome quality of mind, a, a beneficial action, compassionate. And when asked, he said, the Buddhas all teach, do good deeds, avoid causing harm, and develop the mind. To do good deeds is to practice generosity, among others. And through the act of generosity, we do good deeds, we avoid causing harm, and we develop the mind. So we manifest all three of the Buddha's teachings in a single act of generosity. It's the initial practice of learning how to let go. Because, you know, to be generous, there's, we have something and we offer it to someone else. It may be time to help. It may be knowledge to offer. It may be material goods to share. It may be respect, humanity. In fact, Mahasi Saito, the uh, grandfather of this, this particular tradition of practice in Burma, said, it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. And what did he mean by that? Wealth, practicing generosity, humanity from practicing generosity. Well, what is it that we give you know, when we, we, when we offer something. Of course we give something because we have a sense of abundance. When we have enough, or when we have more than enough, then we have something to offer. And so, if you can see the possibility, if you can see the opportunity to practice generosity and have something to offer, you feel like you have an abundance, you have, that you have some wealth accumulated wealth. But that's just kind of reflective. What we actually receive is a wealth of good feelings, a wealth of wholesomeness, a wealth of memories that make us happy, a wealth of friends, a wealth of connection. Because the, the primary element in practicing generosity is to let go, to remove our attachment 
And it is for the happiness and the benefit of others. When we see others being happy, we can get happy. Especially if it's something that we offer or support, then they can be happy. We can be happy. And we also purify our own heart of attachment. When you know that you're going to offer someone a gift, some knowledge, spend some time with them, you feel happy in anticipation. While undertaking the act of generosity, you feel happy. And every time you think about it later, you can reconnect with that happiness. As Manindra, one of our teachers, used to say, you know, if you really want to be happy, practice generosity and remember it. Every time you think of it, you'll be happy. And it's like a single investment brings all this return. That's a good investment in generosity. Humanity? How does generosity develop one's humanity? Well, mostly we see people that are in need, whether it's, you know, those who are starving in Africa or those who are suffering political oppression here or elsewhere, those who are just living through a catastrophe of some sort, those who have you know, incurable diseases that you know, need caring for or investment in philanthropy to help. But actually, it's not just the suffering of others that we address when we practice generosity. We address our own suffering. Because, or I should say, we address our own happiness. Because, excuse me, to, to practice generosity, we have to sense of abundance. We have to remove our attachment. That's the cause of happiness. We have to remove our jealousy. We have to remove our aversion towards the person and connect with them in a, in a very human way. Now, I saw this when, some years ago, when I went to a large city, I was working with a group there and staying in a hotel in town and then meeting with the group. And when I came out of the hotel in the morning to go get my breakfast, there was homeless people, a lot of homeless people, and street people, and beggars of one sort or another. And I've always lived in the country where, well, there's homeless people, but they're not quite as obvious, not so visible. And I would try to, you know, I was a little uncomfortable, so I try to walk around them or go on the other side of the street, but they were over there too. And after a couple of visits to the city, I was pretty uncomfortable. And I realized that I was not happy. I was suffering in my not understanding uh, homeless people, uh, not, you know, not feeling comfortable around them, being afraid of them actually not knowing what was expected of me, or if I would be hurt somehow, or I, I just didn't know. And so I was avoiding them as much as possible. And at some point I realized, I'm suffering. That, 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 this is my suffering, my fear, my anxiety, my avoidance, my denial, my confusion, my ignorance. And the homeless people, they're not going to. They're not going to do anything for me. They're not going to. They're not going to fix my suffering. And so I had to do that. So I took it on as a practice to greet them. You know, just meet them and greet them, and just check in with them. How's it going? 
How's your day? What's happening? You know, and you know, just trying to connect with whatever I could, and then to and then, you know, after a few minutes, just ask them, well, what what do you need? What do you need today? Or how much do you need? Or what do you need it for? That I got some really interesting answers. <laughs> right. And it was really engaging. You know, I, I, it, you know, for the most part, they're not scary. They're human. They're human people that are, you know, that that have some really difficult conditions to live with, whether it's poverty a lot, mental illness a lot, uh, and conditioning that, you know, our culture just doesn't support. And so I would meet and greet, talk and connect, and and then make it an offering of some some gesture of support, a dollar or two or five, you know, whether it's for the laundry, a bus ticket, or uh, a room in a shelter that night, or whatever it was. That, that it was it was interesting to engage them and to offer something, knowing knowing full well that they'll be there tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and. It, I'm not able to solve the. Uh, I'm not able to solve the homeless problem, but I can be compassionate. And I realized that when I would stop and talk and just offer, and it was just a few minutes, that really what I was offering was acknowledgement of their humanity and my own. I cared. They were someone that I cared about for that period of time. And I and they would both feel happy, connected, something, some contact during the day that wasn't just another commercial transaction, but a real human-to-human, how's-it-going connection. So every time we make a gift like that, we offer love, humanity, respect, and a little change. And you get all of this in return for a dollar. That is a good investment in your happiness. In your happiness. In my happiness. And you can do it several times a day. Any day you want. There's no end to the amount of happiness you can enjoy. But there are many reasons, many layers of conditioning that prevent us from even seeing the opportunity for our own happiness in this way. Partly because of our own delusion, we may not recognize the need of others. We may not recognize that the benefit of generosity is also for ourselves. We think, oh, I'm losing something and they're getting something at my expense. And that's just that's just delusion. We may, you know, judge others' needs as brought on by their own, by, by themselves. It's their fault. And so why should I support their bad choices in life. Delusion. Or maybe we have, you know, a sense of shame about our own receiving gifts of support from others and 
don't want to shame others in that way. Or maybe we have attachment to our possessions. We, we're stingy. We just don't, we just can't imagine sharing. You know, my closet is full of clothes I don't wear. And it is so easy, and I now have the habit of going, looking in, taking a few things, and going to visit the homeless people where I know, near, near where I live. And here's a nice jacket, and here's a nice pair of socks. Boy, they like stinging socks. And, you know, it's just, it's nothing. It's nothing of value. I won't say it's nothing of value to me. It's something of value because it's an opportunity to practice generosity. It's really valuable to me. But I'm not going to miss that shirt, and I'm not going to miss that pair of socks. And I have three, three vests, three, three, you know, fleecy vests for winter. Three, three. It's like, what do I need three for? You know, I only have two now. <laughs> Just in case. But, you know, you know, all you have to do is look around, and you can see all kinds of uh, abundance, wealth that you have accumulated, and you know that others have a need. Or sometimes, you know, I might not be using the shirt now, but the vest now, but I might need it for later. You know, that kind of hoarding mentality. <laughs> you know, but I haven't worn the thing in three years, four years, five years. It's like, come on. Or sometimes we have aversion to being generous. We don't want to be taken advantage of. Maybe we feel that we're going to condition others' expectations of a continuing gift. There's one store I go to in, uh, in Seattle where there's a couple outside every day, you know, and they're, they're homeless, you know. I've, I've, I've stopped and talked to them several times. I give them something every week. And they're, they're hard conditions in life. And yet they never greet me with, an ex- with the sense of an expectation that I will offer them something. It's my sense that they might think that, not theirs. And so seeing that is like, wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hard life, you know, of, of being living on the street like that. Or maybe we just feel inadequate, insufficient to solve their problems, to help them out of the poverty or the mental crisis or the drug addiction or whatever it is or just the neediness. So there's many reasons for our own blindness of seeing the opportunity. But this is why we practice mindfulness, so that we actually see our fear, we see our inadequacy, we see our sense of inadequacy, we see our beliefs, assumptions, that get in the way of practicing for our own happiness. That's why we practice. The Buddha said, if beings knew as I know the result and benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. Would not let any opportunity go by without sharing. What did the Buddha know about generosity that he would say that? You have to reflect on that. I don't know, but I've reflected a lot on it. There's a lot to think about. 
So generosity is this mindfulness practice. Clearly it's a mindfulness practice. It's also a practice of generosity. It's a practice of, I mean, a practice of compassion. It's also a practice of awareness. Mindfulness, compassion, letting go. They're all wrapped up in a single act of generosity. A wise person gives a gift carefully, gives it with his or her own hands, the Buddha said, gives it showing respect, gives a valuable gift, and gives it with the understanding that something good will come of it. Why? Why do we do it like that? Why do we do it personally with our own hands? Why do we give a gift of value? Why do we recognize that there's some good that comes from it? Because when we practice generosity, we don't want to just kind of, you know, toss the dollar here and just kind of, you know, kind of minimal impact on our own mind. We want to maximize the impact on our own mind. We want to plan, we want to think about it, we want to purify our heart, we want to see the gift. We want to choose a gift that's going to be suitable for the recipient, that's something of value, not just a throwaway, but something of value. Because when we reflect about it later, if we've been careless, if we haven't given much thought, and we tossed off something that we, you know, really not not suitable or not of no value, then you can't feel you can't feel happy about that. You can't feel happy about being generous like that. It's when you give it some thought and you pick a gift that's or something to offer that's needed or valuable, then you can feel happy that you really helped someone and you really let go of something. So, you can be sure that when we take on the practice of generosity, it's going to expose our conditioning of attachment and all kinds of beliefs and assumptions we have about ourselves and about others in need. But this is why we practice, so that we can expose our own deluded beliefs and assumptions. And so then we can do something about it. When I remember my acts of generosity, Wisaka, the Buddha's uh, chief patroness, said, when I remember my acts of generosity, I shall be glad. And when I'm glad, I'll be happy. And when my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. And when my body is tranquil, I will feel pleasant. And when I feel pleasure, my mind will be collected and concentrated. And that will bring about the spiritual faculties, the spiritual powers and factors of awakening. All from generosity. Sometimes we think, oh, generosity, that's, that's, that's not the real practice. It is the real practice because it develops all the qualities of awakening in your heart. When we call it a purification or practice of purifying the mind, we purify the mind of attachment. Now, the giver, the gift, and the receiver all have a an element here. All have a all are at play here. So when we talk about purification, we're talking about the purity of the giver. Now the giver has to remove their attachment to purify their mind, but they also have to be free of attachment to the object that they're going to offer. They also have to be free of attachment to the act, like 
Aha, aren't I being good? You know, taking pride in being generous. And also taking, uh, letting go of attachment to the result. You know, if it's a kind of a quid pro quo, I'll offer you something as long as you at least say thank you. You can't be attached to the result because sometimes you will be ignored when you offer. But you're still offering with the understanding that it's beneficial for you and them whether they give you a nod of agreement or not. So your happiness can't be dependent on the results you get from others. The gift, you know, needs to be, of course, lawfully acquired, needs to be appropriate, and the more appropriate it is for the person, the better. Now, a lot of times, you know, homeless people on the street, you're not sure what they're going to use if you offer change or money. You're not sure what they're going to use it for. I've asked, and some are honest. <laughs> you, know, you know, I want to hit, I want to fix, I want a beer, I want whatever. And I still offer it to them. Because it's something they need for their happiness. Or, you know, I'm not there to solve all their problems. And then, the one who receives the gift. Now, this is a little tricky. Because, you know, it's easy to see the need of homeless people and uh, for whatever reason, and it's easy to see the need of those who are suffering a catastrophic, uh, you know, environmental thing or disease or war or whatever. But what the Buddha's pointing to here, he says, if you give to someone who can, who has, who has a pure mind themselves, they would use that gift for the benefit of others. So if you make one gift, they can make the gift to others. So it's something like the story, you know, if you see a person who's hungry and you offer them a meal, they are fed for one meal. If you teach them how to work or you offer them a job, then you offer them a meal for as long as they work. But if you build a school, you offer a lot of people the opportunity to have a meal every day for a long time. So how is it that you offer... You know, we, don't, we don't have enough to offer a school all the time. But we can contribute to that. Or we can offer to those who do use the resources for education of others. So we should consider just... You know, we shouldn't pass up an opportunity to be generous to a single person... But we should also look for opportunities to mm, multiply the effect of our gift by giving it to those who can use it for the benefit of many. Oh, when giving gifts and charities, consider wisely to whom you give. Charity and donations are like seeds. If sown in fertile soil, they will yield abundant fruit. And if sown in poor soil, one will reap pork. So, after I'd been in Burma for four years, I was thinking about coming back to the States. And uh, one day, these two women knocked at the door of my cottage and they were two Burmese women that I hadn't ever met. They spoke 
good English, and they'd come in and talk to Wow, and they said, oh, you, we'd like to take you to meet our teacher. And in Burma that means they would like me to meet their, the Sayadaw that they, that the Sayadaw of their family, because every family has a Sayadaw that's kind of the, you know, the, the spiritual leader, the family psychologist, the, the uh, babysitter for the kids sometimes when they need to be reprimanded or trained and whatever. So I'd seen, I'd met a lot of Sayadars and I'd had all the, you know, I've been practicing there for four years and I wasn't particularly interested actually. And, but they were insistent that you, you gotta meet, you gotta meet our teacher. So, I mean, I just, oh, alright, alright. So I decided I'd go and uh, we set the date and they showed up on the date and uh, on the way over to where we were going they told me about this, this Sayadar. Now this Sayadar had been, um, He'd been the, when Mahasi Sayadaw opened the meditation center for lay people like us, householders, not just for monks and nuns, but when he'd opened the meditation center to teach this kind of meditation to lay people, he needed someone to teach. I mean, he knew how to teach, but he needed someone. So he asked this monk who already had a fairly established meditation practice. So he came to the center and he was teaching. I think he was teaching the men at the meditation center. And as soon after it opened, it became very popular. People, Burmese people, really flocked to it to learn to meditate. And so he got very busy teaching every day, you know, hundreds of people. And he did this for 10 years before, you know, asking for the third time, finally, if he could be relieved of his duties so that he could, you know, go to his own a monastery. And Finally, Mahasi Sayadaw agreed, and he went to a place in uh, northern Rangoon called North Okalapa. And there he found a little piece of a monastery uh, where he could have, a, where he was offered a couple of acres, and it was a tree-filled uh, place. And he'd lived there for the last 30 years when I was going to see him. He'd lived there for 30 years. And uh, they told me that he was a very simple monk. It was clearly a good meditator, but he was a very simple monk. And in his monastery, he only had a, a couple of wooden cottages for a few monks. Now, this is in, you know, Rangoon, and, you know, monks and meditation centers are pretty, can be pretty grandiose. And because, you know, it is said that the Burmese people generally offer, between, as poor as they are, you know, down at number one or two from the bottom, on the UN standards of per capita income per year. Uh, still, they offer between a quarter and a third of their annual income to monks, nuns, pagodas, temples, shrines. That's, that's, that's their practice of generosity. And so there are some pretty elaborate temples and pagodas and monasteries and things like that. But he didn't, he didn't let anything like that get built in his monastery. They just wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even let them bring electricity in or a phone. No cement pathways. It was just forest pathways in, in Rangoon. And uh, elderly women, when they finish their families or their husbands have passed on, or, or, or at some point in their life when they have no more domestic duties, they often come and stay at monasteries, uh, meditation centers, to take care of the place and to, you know, just be available and to do their own practice mostly. So he had he had, had built a dormitory for women to stay in. So when I got there, 
and they said that he was a real diligent practitioner and you know he would go away every year for a few months to do his own practice in southern in southern Burma and other than that he was just there and lived very simply so I got there talked to him and I told him I was going to be leaving to go to back to return back to the states and asked him if he had any advice and you know he just thought about it for I mean briefly and he just said you know as long as you do your own practice everything will be fine seems simple enough I didn't realize how profound it was until you know 10 years later but nevertheless if you keep doing your own practice it'll be okay so I really was impressed by how you know sincere simple kind of like ordinary but really had a demeanor and a, and a bearing that was notable. So I asked him if I could come practice with him. And at that time, Burma was still under martial law and couldn't do anything like that. But I, I got permission. I, I went to the government and asked for permission to move from one monastery to another one for a couple of weeks. They gave me permission, so I went. When I got there, I asked him where, where I could practice. And he said, well, come with me. So he took me out back of his house the little cottage, and he had a he had a place where he practiced, and it was a long, it's about six feet wide, 40, 50 feet long, bed at one end, toilet at the other, that's where he would go into practice. He could walk back and forth and sit, walk back and forth and sit, and go out each day and get his alms. And the windows were such that they had shutters on them where the breeze could go through, but when you looked out, all you could see was the ground right close to the building. You couldn't see anything. So it was really a closed uh, place. So he said, here, you can stay here. I said, okay, great. And uh, so I said, what time do we go on alms round? He said, you know, you're only here for a couple of weeks. Uh, why don't he and the other monks go for alms? They bring it back and share it with me, and I can just continue practicing. I said, great, okay. So I went in the room, and there I was, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sleep, sitting and walking, eat, sitting and walking, sleep, 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 sitting and walking, sitting and walking. Well, geez, after... After a few days, it gets a little bit like cabin fever. <laughs> like, I'd like to, get, yeah, I want to go out and walk around a little bit, get some, I don't know, change of scenery. So I, you know, got my robe, went to the door, opened the door, step out, he's standing right there. <laughs> okay, he didn't speak English, I didn't speak Burmese, but I, I sensed that he was encouraging me to continue practice. <laughs> Back in the room, close the door, sit and walk. A few more days. And it's kind of, you know, I would get my meals, and but then that, that was just a 20-minute, get your meals, that's it. And back in the room, doing for another three, four days, I don't know how long. Just got Kevin, you know, just, you get a little, you know, the mind, you know, the mind is like, it needs a little space. So I wanted to go out and walk around the monastery. So I go to the door again, open the door, he's standing right there. <laughs> and he can't see in to know what I'm doing. So, you know, there's something about this mind, you know, that can, can know things that's not usually known. But if it's developed, you can know a lot. Anyway, the last evening I was there, he said, you know, tomorrow morning you can go on alms round with us. I said, great. There was a ceremony or some kind of festival in town that night. And they set up these loudspeakers and 
blare all night and talking and you know, chanting and do all kinds of stuff. And you know, you don't get much sleep when that's going on. So in the morning, put on the robes, went out to get in the, the line, and this, he had about ten monks staying with him. And we were all he checked us all to make sure we were dressed right and he headed out. He was at the head of the line and he started out the monastery. So he walks across the monastery grounds, this little compound, and I forgot to mention that this little compound, a little couple of acres of trees, is now in the middle of this vast urban sprawl. <laughs> in 30 years, the city had just grown around it, but he didn't cut, didn't, he didn't cut down any trees. So we got to the edge of the monastery, and he stepped aside, and he waved the other monks through, and he pulled me aside, and he indicated to me to follow him back into the monastery while the rest of the monks went out on alms round. And before I turned to follow him, I looked out to see that the pathway, the road, outside of the monastery was lined with hundreds of people waiting to offer alms to those monks. Ooh. So he took me out the back way. We walked through the monastery, went out the back way, nobody out there. And we walked for 10, 15 minutes on dusty, I mean, just, you know, paths. Paths that be, you know, oxcart trails, that's what they were. And this is in the middle of Rangoon, or northern Rangoon. And uh, eventually we came into, a, a, you know, an intersection, turned the corner, and there were some markets there, you know, street, street markets, street stalls. And somebody said, oh, the monks are coming for alms round. So we walked to the first person who was there to offer something. And, you know, as soon as they know that monks are coming, they, they get something to offer from one of the shops. There was some curry, some rice, and this and that, some flour, something, anything. And then they kneel on the ground to... Uh, offered it to the monks. So we came up to the first person and somebody came and offered us something and more people came. We stood there, stood there for a few minutes while 10, 15 people came and offered something. You know, and pretty soon our bowls got full and one of the merchants gave some little temple boys who were following us some plastic bags. We emptied our bowls into the bags and kept going. Well, he took me on this alms round for like two hours that morning. Everywhere he went. Every little intersection, people would see him. They'd have him stop, get something, either from their house or a shop or whatever. He'd been there for 30 years. These people had all moved there to be with him, to hear his teachings. They would go to work during the day, but at night they would come back, they'd practice, he'd give a Dharma talk at night, they'd practice late into the night, go home, get up in the morning and go again. And this is his life. He just lives as a monk, doing his practice. And we got back to the monastery, and we had our meal, and all the food that had been collected by all the other monks, <coughs> and all that we had, was all given away to the poor people. That day. Every day. For 30 years. I was so impressed. I was so grateful to meet him. I was so impressed with, wow, the integrity of his life and the value of his life to those hundreds of thousands of people. And just by doing his own, his practice with integrity and diligence, he's supported out of gratitude by people who care to have the Dharma in their life. And he, out of gratitude for them, offers them the Dharma. And the, the life of integrity. 
when we return home and we return to our civic, social, you know, our jobs and friends, people are going to ask you, what what'd you do? How was it? Nothing speaks louder than your actions. We too have an effect on everyone that we come in contact with. If we do our practice, we can be a support for others. You don't have to teach, you don't have to talk, you don't have to kind of proselytize anything. You just have to live a life of integrity and others benefit. The Buddha said, the gift of the Dharma excels all other forms of giving. It's not giving the Dharma like giving the Dharma book. It's like living the Dharma is a gift that you offer, that you give to everyone that you come in contact with. This is why we practice. So that we can be a force of goodness in the world, in our world, in the whole world. And it's not that we're doing anything extraordinary except developing our own heart. But that's extraordinary. And being willing to live with integrity. And while we don't live in a Buddhist country and we're not side Oz, we still have a circle of friends. We have a circle of acquaintances. We have people that care about us. And if we care about them, if we care about our Dharma, we're caring for them. This is the practice of generosity. This is the practice of all the paramis, actually. When we live the Dharma, it's a gift that we give to others. Now we can begin to understand how Mahasi Sayadaw can say that it is generosity that one can rely on for one's wealth, one's happiness, and one's humanity. The Dharma, the Buddha said, protects those who protect the Dharma. And we protect the Dharma by practicing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.